we must all remember the lessons of the past as a guide for the management of the present and the planning for the future. I am the daughter of Cooley women whose stories should not be forgotten. Welcome to the Peppa Pot. Sitaram, assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the pepper pot. One of the biggest problems that planters faced during the period of indentureship was how to keep experienced male workers in the colonies and on the plantations. Many planters saw indentured Indian women as a possible solution. In fact, in 1845, the colonies mandated that vessels could only depart from India to the Caribbean after recruiting 14 women for every 100 men. Now that ratio fluctuated over the remaining decades of indentureship, eventually rising to 40 women for every 100 men. However, whether and how those quotas were met is another story. The truth is that during most of the period of indentureship, the number of men recruited to work on these plantations greatly outnumbered the number of women. But for some women, arriving in the colonies meant that they were no longer bound by caste or the patriarchal gender norms of their family. You see, for some, the colonies represented freedom and an opportunity to transcend the generations of oppression that they experienced back home. You see, planters strongly believed that men would be more likely to stay on the plantation if they could find a partner to start a family with. As such, planters, recruiters, and others involved in the machinery of indentureship made great efforts to increase the number of women that came and ultimately stayed in the colonies. For example, Extensive lobbying took place in India, England, and the Caribbean to repeal the 1883 Indian Immigration Act, which aimed to keep married women from deserting their homes for the colonies. Those suspected of lying could be detained for up to 10 days or until their story could be verified. In addition, planters and the colonial governments also offered those who completed their indentured contracts land in lieu of their promised repatriation to India. You see, many Indians having emerged from the system of indentureship with little to no wealth, accepted the deal, perhaps with ideas of getting married and raising children. But introducing more women to the colonies also created what Melissa Ono George describes as a self-reproducing source of labor. Now, according to Ono George, having families willing to remain within the colony and on the plantation not only eliminated the cost for return passage that planters had to pay Indian workers, but also was thought to reduce the number of disturbances on the plantation that disrupted the production of sugar. You see, such disturbances, namely fighting between men and the abuse of Indian women by Indian males, were blamed on the insufficiency of females as opposed to the violence of males. But despite being in high demand, indentured women received no preferential treatment and were often the victims of abuse. As a result, and according to Dr. Kavita Ashana Singh, an English professor at Houston University, indentured women took care of themselves through jahajiban, a term that loosely translates to ship sister. You see, Jahajiban refers to women's solidarity formed during indentureship and suffering and loss, but also expresses a shared collective destiny fueled by deeply ingrained social and cultural principles of communalism. Similarly, Dr. Miriam Purby, an English professor at Wilfrid Laurier University, 
describes Jahajiban as a feminization of the more common appellation of Jahajibai, meaning ship brothers. Now, while both terms refer to the first indentured Indians that experienced the process of recruitment, transplantation, and resettlement in the British colonies, Jahajibai often affirmed their identity and authority through violence against women and the imposition of patriarchal gender norms. To that end, Jahajiban was especially important for indentured women when protection from the men in their community turned to physical and psychological violence. Jahajiban can thus be seen as a means of feminist empowerment that motivated indentured Indian women and their descendants to resist and transgress various forms of gendered control and violence. In fact, Jahajiban includes women from all walks of life, widows, sex workers, married and single women, women fleeing abusive relationships, and queer women. These were among the most vulnerable and marginalized populations in India, which made them prime targets for recruiters. Some were abducted in markets, railway stations, temples, and other public spaces, and forced to sign indentured contracts by local immigration agents. Others willingly stepped onto those ships in search of freedom away from their oftentimes small remote villages, their identities stripped away, along with their stories, langas, and sense of dignity. I am the daughter of Kuli women, whose stories should not be forgotten. Welcome to the Peppa Pot. You know, growing up, I loved to collect two things, coins and postcards. Coins, because I feel like each one tells us something special about the country that they're from. And postcards, because they remind me that there's beauty in every part of the world. You see, whenever someone would mention that they were traveling, I would always ask for a postcard, even if they were going somewhere that I had been to or somewhere I had no plans of traveling to myself. But long before I started my postcard collection, they were, and perhaps still are, a symbol of cosmopolitanism and being well-traveled. You see, the rise of photography and increased tourism to the Caribbean led to the postcard industry's prominence in the region. According to Gayatri Bahadur, postcards tried to portray the Caribbean as a beautiful and safe place, basically a PR job with colonialism. They aimed to create a positive image of the region to showcase how beautiful it was and how beautiful the people were. This is why 19th century Caribbean postcards often featured women referred to as coolie bells. They were pictured posing in traditional langa choli and adorned with elaborate gold and silver jewelry, like bell-shaped jumkas. They were often shown in studios, leaning against European-style pillars or in front of cane fields, depicted as nameless, mysterious, and exotic. And it worked. The women in these photos some pictured in cane fields taller than the ships that stole some away across the dark waters, made the Caribbean appear as a safe, exotic, and lush tourist destination. According to Bahadur, the photographs not only exoticized and sexualized these women, 
They completely ignored the background of labor and violence they experienced. And this is the danger of not telling our story. We run the risk of smudging important details that tell a much deeper story about the women in these postcards. Without that context, all we see is a beautiful country filled with beautiful people. By understanding and appreciating that context, these postcards and the women they depict can become powerful tools for us to tell our stories. But as Bahadur writes, The will to remember is undermined by an equally formidable will to forget. Why were our ancestors on those boats in the first place? How many came of their own free will? How many hoped to leave their stories behind and forge new identities in the colonies? Were there plans to return? You see, I came across several of these Cooley Bell postcards while creating this podcast. The owner said that he purchased them from an estate sale in New Jersey. I expressed my interest in purchasing them, but at the time, he was asking for far too much money. You see, I didn't think much of the interaction until weeks later. But the reality is that these postcards tell a small but important piece of our story. According to Rupa Pillai, a senior lecturer of Asian American Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, they seem to say, we've colonized them. They're lovely, docile, civilized individuals that you can come and look at. Come to the Caribbean. You see, when I first saw these postcards, I thought long and hard about whether these women had any power over their photographs. Did they understand why their picture was being taken? Did they even want their photos to be taken? What, if anything, did they receive in exchange for having their picture taken? Despite all of my unanswered questions, I felt a sense of attachment to these photographs, these postcards, this piece of our story, which is why I was angry that they were in the hands of someone who had no appreciation for what they meant, other than the price that they could fetch at auction. I was angry, but not surprised. After all, it wouldn't be the first time that someone turned a profit off of our people and our women. My childhood memories are imbued with the musical brilliance of Chutney legends such as Sundar Popo, Sunny Man, Ricky Jai, and Bablan Kanchan. Their voices ignited my passion and appreciation for music, which I would lean on heavily while creating the sound for this podcast. You see, in a 1994 interview with Newsday, Sundar Popo explains that Chutney music is like a sweet young mango, sliced up and sprinkled with salt and pepper. You mix soca with calypso with Indian music, and form an exciting and fast beat that people really enjoy. You see, we don't belong to one community. We belong to a mixture. And that's what chutney, a spicy, fruity relish is, a mixture. Going even further, Mungal Pastasar and other legendary Indo-Caribbean musicians teach us in the 1997 documentary, Chutney and Yasoka, that chutney has its roots in the folk tunes brought to the Caribbean by the Indian indentured workers 150 years ago. And whether we know it or not, our story lives on through our music. If you listen closely, you will learn more about our people than one could hope for. But why is it so important for our story to live on? Well, as Brenda Breck wrote in a 1992 South Asian Diaspora article, 
the task of forming an image of our people has been left mainly to the media, which has done little more than pick up derogatory international stereotypes about Indian poverty, female oppression, and the like, and apply them to us. You see, having our own sound gives us the power to bring our stories to life. In many ways, Chutney tells the story of our people. Rohit Jagasar speaks to this in his groundbreaking memoir, Kiss and Breathe. He describes recording the hit record Lagomina Raja with Bablan Kanchan in Mumbai for the 1991 best-selling album of the same name. These songs are the poetry of liberation for the people who once toiled in the sugar fields, Jagasar writes. The song, originally performed by Halima Bassoon sometime between 1973 and 1975, was for the longest time, and without explanation, my favorite. You see, it was only after reading Mr. Jagasar's memoir that I discovered its true meaning and the homage it pays to our ancestors who dared to cross the Kalapani. You see, I started to make connections between this song and all I had come to know about our history. I saw patterns and understood that our stories have been told and retold through our music. What plantation life was like, alcoholism, infidelity, religion, victory, defeat, it was all there. I just didn't realize it. Here, we find a woman who cannot bear the shame of her family discovering her secret lover. She pleads with him to let her go, but he refuses. In all honesty, don't think she wants to go. After all, she tells us that sugar is sweet, my love, but not as sweet as you. Between 1859 and 1917, more than 167 women were killed by intimate or would-be intimate partners in British Guyana. Infidelity was the usual suspect. Remember, planters and recruiters did everything they could to increase the number of women in the colonies, and those that did come earned significantly less than men. Further compounding the lack of women was the fact that Indian men who completed their indentured contracts and established themselves in the colony, were able to entice women, some of them already married to indentured Indian men, with gold, silver, and jewelry. That is why I find it so unsettling that violence against women was much greater than these statistics suggest. According to Gayotri Bahadur, violent acts against women were often not meant to kill, but to dishonor, dehumanize, and imprint the brand of infidelity on them. Specifically, Bahadur found that the noses of indentured Indian women were a primary target for Indo-Caribbean men's hands and cutlasses, as it was believed to represent their honor. But rather than try to solve the problem at hand, colonial officials experimented with punishments like hangings and floggings to deter men from committing similar acts. The most effective measure appeared to be transferring actual or potential aggressors from one plantation to another, but that too did little, if anything, to solve the root causes of these problems. While many indentured women discovered new freedoms in the colonies, many were placed into boxes. 
forced to live in a constant state of fear because of the decisions they made with her lives and bodies. Today, the issue of violence against women persists. A 2019 study found that one in two Guyanese women have experienced intimate partner violence in their lifetime. In 2011, Guyana's Ministry of Labor, Human Services, and Social Security commissioned a report which concluded that domestic violence is the most pervasive form of interpersonal violence in Guyana. You see, growing up, I enjoyed many freedoms that my fellow Indo-Caribbean sisters had to fight tooth and nail for. I was allowed to hang out with my friends for as long as I wanted and could dress without worrying about whether my outfit was too revealing or inappropriate. There were few, if any, restrictions placed on my freedom. And while I realized that the double standard exists solely because of my gender, it was not until recently that I understood how deep these expectations run and how loaded with trauma they are. You see, violence against women is an important topic of discussion in our community. I cannot begin to tell you how many stories I have heard about women, both family and friends, who felt like they had no other option but to stay in a physically abusive relationship. And while we can see the physical abuse, it's the mental trauma that has the most damaging effect on our community. As we come to a close, we want to take a moment to express our sincere appreciation for the support from all of our listeners. Now, my name is Ryan Avenger Ramden, and together with my partner, the artist Sarasati Ramprashad, we bring to you the Peppa Pot. In this podcast, we explore the legacy of Indo-Caribbean people and the survivors of Indian indentureship. As children of the Guyanese diaspora, we are paying homage to our ancestral roots through this body of creative work. So. What can you expect from the Peppa Pot? Well, join us on Sundays as Sarasati and I unpack the untold history of Guyana through narrative storytelling in Season 1. We share the story of Indian indentureship, discuss our experiences as first-generation Guyanese Canadians, and unapologetically confront some of the most pressing issues facing the Indo-Guyanese community. As newcomers to the podcasting world, we're eager to hear your thoughts. What did you like about this episode? What do you want to hear more of? Your feedback is invaluable to us, so don't hesitate to shoot us an email at thepeppapot at gmail.com. Your encouragement helps us grow and learn more about you, our audience. And for those of you who just can't get enough of our grand story, we encourage you to check out the resources listed in the description below. Who knows what stories and discoveries await you? Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook at The Peppa Pot Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning into this episode, and we'll see you again on the Peppa Pot next Sunday.